Open them up when you get them, please, to Matthew chapter 26. So Matthew 26. First book of the New Testament. Almost done with it. Uh, Not that I'm in any hurry by any means. We pick it up in verse 36. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And what that means is we just pick up where we left off. We don't avoid anything, try to dodge around anything. And not to pick on anyone else who may be more topical or whatever. I just love the fact that you just really, if it's there, you have to deal with it. Verse 36 says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Could you try that? Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Uh, and said to his, the two the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples, or to the disciples, and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, What? See that question mark there? You have to kind of do that. What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he said, and he, and he left them, and he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples, his disciples, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, in this heavy, heavy text, where you bring all of our doctrines to a point, Speak profoundly and perfectly and succinctly today that we would clearly hear and know and understand and apply. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have perfect dominion in this room, that you would, Lord, speak our languages perfectly, individually, right the way that we get it, the way that we understand it. Let your word burst open and come alive. Captivate us in your word now. And God, draw us in so that we get it. We genuinely, wholeheartedly get it. And in getting it, Lord, today, revolutionize our hearts. Give us the backbone we will need to take a stand like we should. And help us today. Bring salvation, hope, transformation to this room, I pray. Have your perfect work in each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Don't just assume that some guy with a microphone is telling you the truth. There's a whole lot of doofuses out there that that are full of microphones. You know, there are some that read the Bible and they kind of think of it as a collection of cute metaphors, stories that some old Jewish guy told another old Jewish guy that somewhere down the line, someone actually learned how to write and wrote it down. And so you approach stories that seem fairy taleish, if you will, sort of like the story of the Garden of Eden. And in that story, it seems, well, it, it seems so strange, like there should be a prince riding on a white unicorn at the end of it all, saving the day, because it's just such a strange concept, or is it? 
I'm a firm believer that God knows how to communicate, and because he knows how to communicate, he knows when he wants to tell his story, and he knows when he wants to tell you just simply this is his story, if you will. But the Bible starts with a situation where God created man. And I'd like to compare the God of the Bible to every other God that's out there, anything that's called God. Because the God of Scripture invents man with a touch, with a handle, different than everything else he speaks into existence with yada. Let there be, but in the beginning God just spoke it and it was, but there was difference with this man guy. He formed him and then breathed life into him and had this intimate relationship. In this garden he called Heden or Eden. Uh, and And of course now it's become iconic and we use it in all kinds of ways. People who have no concept of God like to use it because it's iconic enough we can put it on a plaster. But understand, Heden means pleasure. And there was a place that God called pleasure. Not that man did. It wasn't like Adam looked and said, let's call this place. Cool. God looked and he called it pleasure. And what God identified or defined as pleasure was being with, with you, with being with me. That was it. There was nothing complicated about it. There wasn't a set of rules and rituals at that particular point because, to be honest, there was no fallen man that needed to surrender to a statute, if you will, other than this. First of all, enjoy me, and then guard and expend your energy on this garden with me. So he did give a command. Protect this place. Because it's a beautiful place, and it was a place of intimacy, a place of peace, a place of hope, a place that was safe. And God gave Adam dominion. He gave him authority over this whole place. He said, you know, the only way that this place is going to get destroyed is if you let it in. It's not going to destroy itself naturally. It's not going to destroy itself in any way other than this. By your allowance. But then the garden became a place of temptation. The fruit that he saw that was forbidden was pleasant to the eyes, good for food, and desirable to make one wise. John tells us in 1 John 3 that the ingredients of the world are very simple. There's only three ingredients, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful part of life. He says that's basically everything. That's the recipe. You mix those three things up, and what you basically have is the systems of the world. Now understand, lust, we naturally just assume it's sexual, but it isn't. In its simplest sense, God has given you every appetite you possess, God has given you. The appetite for importance, the appetite for relationship, the appetite for, for touch or whatever it would be. God has given you those appetites. But with every appetite God has given you, he's given you a menu. And all a lust is, is ordering off the menu. God says, this is when, this is how. But let's be honest, you can go to a restaurant, you can look at the menu, and then you can look around the room and realize you have a lot more options if you look outside of the menu. You could eat the table, the tablecloth. You could eat the waiter. You can eat his shoes. You can eat the cat that's outside, that's walking by. You can lick the paint off of the window. You know, I mean, all of the things that are there, there's countless op- options. And you realize, could you imagine if somebody leaned over and you guys are at a, you're at a restaurant, you guys are kind of just you know, chilling, having pizza, and some guy leans over and goes, you realize there's a lot more things to eat here than that pizza. That apron, for instance, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? The hair on that woman, I mean, look at how hard she worked. You know, and imagine you start realizing, isn't, isn't, don't you think it's mean that they give you such a limited menu? Oh, for goodness sakes, look at all the things you could eat if you stop looking at this menu. Well, there's the idea. And because this place would become a place where there was failure, because these temptations then Adam and Eve would surrender to, they were cast to the wilderness. And the wilderness was a place of work and frustration and pain and suffering. It was a place where we saw death. And here we lived. And a place feeling unsure and unsafe and exhausted and painful and disappointed and feeling like a total failure and feeling hopeless. And man would live there, but there was a promise from the very beginning that God would bring him back. If we read that as some form of cute allegory, then the story that we're about to look at here in the Gospel of Matthew has less impact than if we really were to look at it the way God intended as history. See, Jesus came to take us from the wilderness back to the garden. Because he was to do so, he would have to meet the the tempter in the wilderness first. 
Jesus, once baptized, then John identifies him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Notice the first thing Jesus does is he's got an appointment because Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And because of that, Jesus was, if he was going to take us from the wilderness back into the garden, well, then he would have to take the temptations of the garden that were now in the wilderness and take us back there. So Jesus then is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And what is he tempted with? Turn this stone to bread. That's the, the lust of the flesh. All these people I will give you if they bow down, because they're just, kingdoms are just people, and that's the lust of the eyes. What do you see that you want? Throw yourself from the temple, because if you threw yourself from the temple and the angels caught you, you'd be showing off and everyone would know you're the Messiah. And that's the pride of life. And you realize the same thing that has worked on you and has worked on me and has worked on every human being did not work on Jesus. Because all Jesus had to do was blow it once and everything would be over. So, Jesus takes the tempter in the wilderness and he defeats him. And he comes out of that in the power and the strength of the Spirit as we read in Luke. And then Jesus begins his teaching ministry. But if Jesus is going to take us from one side to the other, Jesus has to take us to the temptation and overcome the temptation in the garden. And that is the temptation we see here. Where Adam and Eve fell in the garden and would wind up in the wilderness, Jesus would take the temptation in both places to take us back. The simplest, most Honest and natural temptation is putting us first. Putting our life first. Our survival mechanisms within us are what brought the Romans to, in essence, pardon me for using the expression, perfect the art of crucifixion. Because the reason why a person dies so slowly in crucifixion is their natural ability and desire to, to survive. Because you die from suffocation and your body, that is the most natural, unconscious, if you will, reaction your body has. It is built to survive. And because of that, you will gasp on that cross for as long as 11 days because that's what your body does. Well, if Jesus was to take us from one place to the other... Then what he has to do is he has to take all of the crimes and the punishments that were rightly ours and take them upon himself. See, this is what separates Jesus from everyone else. Well, two things. First of all, the only person qualified to do that is someone who doesn't have the bill to pay themselves, which means they have to be sinless. Do you know even the Quran says that Jesus was sinless? doesn't say that about Muhammad. Did you know that? Now, I'm not telling you that that's a holy book or that that's perfect, but I am telling you this. I am telling you that Jesus was without sin and continues to be because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be qualified to take the cup. See, it tells us in Isaiah 51 and in Ezekiel 23 and that there was a cup and that cup, by the way, if you will, was of horror, wrath, and desolation. So follow me on this. There's a cup. And in this cup is to be, then, if you will, the product of every horrible thing ever done. So, every rape, every abuse, every torture, every manipulation, every intentional broken heart, murder, kidnapping, the crimes of the Holocaust, the crimes of slavery. You put all of that in this cup. Which one of you would want to drink it? Because it's our bill. It is mankind's bill. If man were to stand right before God, his guilt must be punished. Now, how do we do that if we don't have a God that can think about it? This becomes a problem, and this is the bigger problem with every other religion, is somewhere either God is simply just, the God or whatever, is simply just, and then nails you for the things, because then it, therefore there's an equilibrium, you know, there's a universal justice, or somehow he lets them go, and then if your sins aren't punished, well, that means somehow guilt is never really finally vanquished. But you took... And if you can think of the most horrible people that you've, you've ever met or, or, or even read about, which is often embellished, and you put all of that in a cup, it's the cup of horror. It is the cup 
of wrath. And it is the cup of desolation. But there's another cup that is promised. The cup in Jeremiah 16 and Psalm 116. The, the, the cup of salvation, the cup of comfort and the comfort of consolation. That particular cup can only be brought to a person, if you think about it, that is someone who's had their bill paid. Now, here's the problem. You can stand in the court of law and choose to represent yourself. Let's be honest. You've done something wrong. Somehow you think you're cute enough or clever enough or stylish enough that somehow you're going to be able to sway. And with your swag, you're going to be able to pull a a jury. But in the end of it all, you're representing yourself. And if you're guilty, you're guilty. And the price has to be paid. But God allowed one provision. And the one provision is if somebody perfect that didn't have sin upon themselves would choose to do it in your stead, would volunteer, not be forced to, but volunteer, well, then it would be okay. That person could pay your bill. But God knew the only person that would be qualified would be himself. And that's Jesus, the only one from God's gene pool. We read it as only begotten. Monogenes. Genes, like gene or genital, forgive me, or generation. It's the genes. Mono means only or one. For Jesus to be the only begotten means he was the only one from the Father's gene pool. And he comes down tempted in every way yet without sin so that he is qualified. See, all of these other religious leaders, none of them even qualify, first of all, because none of them are perfect. None of them are spotless or sinless. They have done wrong things. I challenge you to to look at some of the people that are heralded as some of the greatest and wisest men. How many of them have even just simply abandoned their families? It would be easy for a man to say that God couldn't possibly have a son when he's abandoned his own. Because he can't fathom the idea of being a father. So how could he fathom God being one? So on one side of it, only one person qualifies, and that's Jesus. And on the other side, only one person volunteers. And that's the same one. Aren't you thankful that the one who volunteered was the one qualified? Well, with that in mind, Jesus knows that if mankind is to be redeemed, that first cup has to be drunk. And that's what we have in our text. What we have in our text is Jesus knowing in his final temptation, the temptation is a temptation to stay alive, knowing that he's going to have to drink that cup of horror, wrath, and desolation. And here becomes our problem. The horror of offending God, the wrath of God's righteousness, the desolation of being separated from the Father, because Isaiah 59.2 says that your iniquities have separated you from your God. God and His Son have enjoyed perfect intimacy for eternity past. And they're going to have to break just so that He can get you. Jesus has just been told by all of His disciples that they would never leave Him nor forsake Him. They've told them that they're willing to die with them. Jesus knows, according to Ezekiel, um, <clears throat> that that is impossible because they are clearly, I'm sorry, I'm sorry they're, they're, Zechariah 13, 7, that they're going to, because Scripture says that strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee, Jesus knows they have a date to desert Jesus tonight. But understand, they fully, in great confidence of their own emotion, stand and say, this will never, I'll Jesus, I know you think that I'm not. I'm going to fail you today, but you don't understand. I've got a big bag of strength back here you have never seen, and I'm going to whip that thing out, and you're going to see I am not going to fail you tonight. I know you think I'm going to, but I'm not. And Jesus knows that they mean well, but he also knows they're going to fail. But he also said this, you're all going to fail me tonight, but I'm going to go before you to Galilee, and I want you to meet me there afterwards. See, what Jesus made clear is, I already know the adulteries and the failures and the weaknesses of your heart, but I want you to recognize you need to know that I've already met those things. I'm going to pay for those things. And I've got a date with you on the other side of this. And I'm going to see you without them because I'm going to pay for them. He already knew the failures and it never once daunted him in his relationship with you or me for that matter. So he has this date, this date with a cup, a cup to drink. It's interesting in all of that. 
Because Jesus throughout time, starting in, in John 2 at the wedding, if you remember, by the way, it was a cup there as well, a cup for a wedding. And he tells his mother, because they had run out of wine, why do you concern me? My hour has not yet come. He'd say the thing in, same thing in John 7 and in John 8, 7, 30 and 8, 20. Uh, and he'll say, my time is not, or his time has not yet come. They wanted to kill him, but his time had not yet come. And then he says in John 17, Father, the hour has come. But imagine from your whole ministry, you knew that you were going to get tortured to death. I mean, horribly ridiculed, mocked, and tortured to death. And that hangs over your shoulders and over your head for the entirety of your service. It does tell us that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him in John 6, 64. But I want, to re- I want to remind you, kind of like Thor's hammer, where nobody could pick it up with the one person worthy. None of us could drink this first cup except for ourselves because we have committed enough sin in our own hearts that we deserve that horror, wrath, and desolation. So in verse 36, Jesus comes to a place that we read here as Gethsemane. It tells us in John 18 in the countertext, it was a garden and it was over the brook Kidron because they left Jerusalem to do so. It also tells us that Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It tells us in Luke 22:39 in that countertext that they went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. Which means that Jesus has gone to this place that he's going to get arrested over and over and over with the boys. Why? To make himself easy to be caught by Judas. See, Judas is so confident that he already knows how he's going to get Jesus arrested. He knows that, if you will, at every night, Jesus, if you will, goes to this particular spot with us and he prays. And I wonder how many times Jesus sat in that same place knowing this would be the place of his arrest. How many times he would sit there and, or kneel, if you will, or whatever, and pray to the Father and look around and realize that everyone he's praying with is going to leave him. And to look in the face of Judas and know that Jesus would betray him. And it does say that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him, but it doesn't say he knew how. And it seems like when Judas ultimately kisses him, Jesus is crushed. He looks and he goes, you betray me with a kiss? I kind of get the idea that Jesus didn't know that part. Well, consider this. The place we read is a place called Gethsemane. Get like Gath, like is, is in uh, Goliath, you know, from Gath, the giant from Gath, the champion of Gath. Gath, get means press, to squeeze. Simnas is the word for olives. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and what would be the most appropriate thing on the Mount of Olives? An olive press. That makes sense, where we make olive oil. Now, let me ask you, in your opinion, would you put the olive press at the top of the hill or at the bottom of the hill? Where would you put it? What do you think? What's that? Bottom. Why? Why would you put it at the bottom? Because why would you want to carry all your olives uphill? That just seems silly, doesn't it? I mean, there's something about the idea. It's like, yeah, let's get this stuff and let's go to the top to do this. Well, that's silly. At the bottom of the hill, somewhere there's a garden. And at that garden around it is an olive press. Now, Interestingly enough, and I have a little video because I want to show you what an olive press looks like because we need to kind of get the idea here as we start to look at this text. So while Anne is pulling up that video, I'm pulling out my pointer. You have that little video? Thank you. Okay, take a look at this. This, can everyone see this? This is a traditional olive press from Chazur. And, uh, oh, okay, it's just really dim. Okay, now, this is, and go ahead and put it on pause for a second if you would. Um, Thank you. Um, I want you to see how this is done. Because this is the way it would have been done 2,000 years ago, and this is what you would be looking at in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, there is this area here. Can you see this area here? And there's this big rock right there. Oh, we're going to do that one more time. All right, here's the idea. Thank you. Yeah, just even a picture of it at the moment will help us. Uh, 
And this is what it looks like at night. You can see not a lot of lights going on, that kind of thing. Okay, here we go. Oh, here we go. All right. What we have. Okay. Oh, see, it's one of those shady days when it keeps going on and off. Uh, what you have is you have these baskets that are down here. And what you would do is you would take the olives and you would pull all of the olives and you would put them in these little flat baskets. And you would take these baskets, and if you can get that up and running, go ahead, and one more time. Uh, and you would take them and you would stack the baskets one upon another and upon another and upon another. Okay, freeze it if you can. Can you do that? It just doesn't do that. Okay, well, here we go. Really quick. See, these are the baskets. Basket, 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 basket. There's a stone here. There's a stone here, and you see this. And then there's weights on this side, stones. Now, what ultimately happens is your first press, your cleanest and your purest, your extra, extra, extra virgin olive oil, the way that it works is, is that this particular shaft, by the way, which can be crude, we'll talk about that another day, that's that plank when you're talking about a plank out of your eye, because you're going to try to make it straight. You, what you do is you take these things, and a stone is so heavy that it crushes those olives. Now, you, can, you try to crush them, and you'll even, different from, from grapes, you even crush the pits, because the pits have oil in them too. Now, as you do that, thank you, Ann. Well done. As you do that, as you increase the weight, you start creating more. Now, initially, the first time through, you take, and notice how there's, there's several of these rocks, and each one has its own rope. Can you see that? And the reason is, you start with one rock, if you will, and that rock comes, and it presses the finest press. The finest press is used specifically for high priests, for anointing, for anointing the king, but also is the oil in the uh, menorah, the, the lampstands in the temple. That's really important because, remember, that's sort of an enclosed building and you want it to be as pure as possible for several reasons. It's for God. But also because you, if it's impure, it leaves all kinds of nastiness above you and then, you, of course, you kind of walk around with that stuff dripping on you. So you don't want that. So the, the natural, and that stuff is clear and it's pure, so what happens, and you probably wear green grapes and black grapes are the same grape. They just mature. Probably wear that. Well, anyways. So what happens is as you crush it, the first stuff is transparent. The purest stuff is transparent. And you probably see that when you see extra virgin oil, it looks kind of really, really light. Well, then ultimately what happens is then you start putting heavier rocks on it. They call that, by the way, if you will, the sweat of the olive. And for good reason. It's clear. Now, ultimately, what happens is as you put more and more olives on, or olives, <laughs> if you put more and more rocks on this side, the weight gets heavier, and it crushes this deeper. And as it crushes it deeper, different today, because today we kind of grind it all up, boil out the water, and, and you kind of have the olive oil that way. This is all done by weight. So as it gets heavier, what happens is you start to crush the pits, and as you start to crush the pits, you start to crush the rest, the, the oil gets darker and darker. It's, it goes from pure, almost transparent, to a yellow, to a green, and we've had the green stuff. And then from the green, it gets down, and it turns almost the color of Sarah's skin. And I don't want to point that out, but I'm going to, because it gets that dark. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful color of Sarah's skin, by the way. There, you know. and, and so what happens is that becomes what they call then the blood of the olive, if that makes sense. But you have to put enough weight. And when you do that, now... Each grade that it gets becomes less and less pure of an, oil, of an olive oil because now you're getting other things with it, the mesh and so forth. And by the way, they're great at recycling. They use every bit of it. Even the stuff at the end becomes, if you will, for makeup. It also becomes part of the medicinal quality. They do that. So uh, every part's of, uh, part of it's used. So it goes from the stuff that's the pure, that's sort of in essence set aside for the temple, to the stuff that's used in cooking and for, um, to, for higher medicines, and then it kind of goes down to the point where you kind of use it in, in baser uh, means. Now, the reason I say that is, is that what Jesus is experiencing, and, he, and it's like, it's perfect how God brings this whole thing to a loggerhead, if you will. He goes, Jesus goes to the place where a great weight is placed upon the grapes and it crushes them and in crushing them they emit first the, the sweat if you will and then they ultimately emit the blood there is the idea and what Luke tells us by the way in this case is that Jesus in his simplest sense has a mental breakdown he has what is called in the, in the medical profession hemohydrosis hematidrosis and what that means is that it gets to this place where his thin becomes brittle like paper mache, it becomes about a sixth its density, and it basically crackles and cracks, and the capillaries underneath the skin start to, to rupture with the sweat glands, and it becomes sweat like blood. And it's exactly what Luke says 
when he says Jesus, when falling to the ground, sweats like drops of blood. And there are actually cases here in England, uh, medical cases in uh, the journals, about specifically about hemohydrosis during the Blitz. Where in one case, a group of nuns were huddled up in one particular place and a boiler explodes. And they, out of sheer terror, experienced hematidrosis. If you understand Jesus went through that, you recognize every torture he experienced after that, you have to multiply by six because the, the integrity of his skin was severely compromised through this. Now, I want you to consider this. Remember, like I was saying, like Thor's hammer, that this cup of horror and wrath and desolation is too heavy Well, I couldn't drink it for you. You couldn't drink it for me because we have our own debt to pay. But God himself, clothed in flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, comes and he's the only one rightful to take this cup. But this cup is a weight that's going to crush him. How would it be? What if if you paid? What would be the proper punishment just for the people who experimented in all of those ways through Nazi Germany, through the Holocaust? What would you think would be appropriate eye for an eye Punishment for that alone. Would you, involuntar- would you volunteer for that? And if you add one thing after another, and one sin after another, the generation to another generation, imagine taking all of that weight, each one a stone upon another stone upon another stone. Imagine that weight. Now, there are, if you will, cheeky philosophers who like to throw out kind of hypothetical situations. And one of them, one of my favorites is, if God is perfect and he's infinite. Could he invent a stone too heavy for himself to lift? Because obviously you kind of get him in a catch-22, right? Because if he can't, then he's impotent in his ability to invent. But if he does, then he's impotent in his strength to lift it. And I can say, actually, God did create a stone too heavy for him to lift, and it crushed him, and then he overcame it. And that's what Jesus has in the garden. But I want you to think for a moment outside of the, you know, just the, the world in mass. And I want you to think about you for a second. Because you were the one thing on his mind. And this is what we read. He came to the place that was the olive press. Can you see how appropriate that would be the place for him to do this? And he said to his disciples, and I want you guys to sit and pray with me. Now I remind you, every one of them said, I'm willing to die with you tonight. I am willing to die. I'll be arrested. I'll die for you. You, I will not fail you. I've got strength beyond strength. Now listen, strength of conviction, strength of emotion, yes, but strength of follow-through, not at all. And Jesus knows this. So understand what Jesus just gave him, and he gives us this too, he gives me this too, is he gives a very low-level test. It does tell us that these guys were really exhausted from emotion. These guys were emotionally drained. Well, what were they emotionally drained over? Well, what would you do when you follow Jesus for three and a half years? He tells you he's about to die and you're going to fail him. I think that would be pretty emotional. But I'd like you to consider Jesus looks and he's like, you really think you have that much strength? How about this? Stay up with me and just pray. How about that? And I've learned this, that often the very if you will, emblem or litmus test of my own personal strength in the Lord revolves around the quality of my prayer life. I mean, Jesus looks at a group of guys and he's going to say it twice and we'll see that there is, in essence, a progression or a digression in this. But, it, but he's looking at these guys and like, you guys said you're going to die with me? You think you're that strong? Can't you even stay awake with me for an hour? Could you even just pray with me? I wonder how many times those guys watched Jesus pray in that same garden, in that same spot, and said he was so different. It tells us in this that he fell to his knees. In this particular text, it tells us, by the way, he took, verse 37, he says, he took Peter and, John, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, they're mentioned by their, by their father here, because I do believe in this sense they're being boys. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. The word for sorrowful is the word lupus. And the word lupus means to be heavy. Jesus began to be heavy. He comes to the garden and he begins to feel the weight. The weight, and and I'm, I'm going to exclude you, I'll just use me for this, just to make it, if you will, less pointed, except to me. But he begins to feel the weight of every anger, angry thought I've ever had, every condemning thought, every accusational thought I've entertained. Every time I've entertained in my mind slaughtering somebody for something they've done to me, 
in whatever means often slower and more torturous than you know each time I go over it. I know that sounds really sick, but be honest with yourself, you're like that too. Anyway, you know, and it's like, and I, and I think about how many times my heart entertained, even for a moment, something so stupid and so callous and so heartless. And as those things start to culminate, the stones are put one upon another on the plank. And Jesus begins to feel heavy. He begins to feel the weight of my sin. And then he turns to these three boys and he says, in verse 38, My soul is exceedingly heavy or sorrowful, even to death. The word now, remember the word was lupus, now the word is perilupus. Peri is, there's two different words for around. Amphi, like you're in an amphitheater where if you're on stage, it's all around you. If you will, you're on the inside looking out. You're on the inside of the donut looking at it. And peri, where it's on the outside, like perimeter, where you measure the outside around it. We're in the perimeter. To say peri, and you add that as a prefix to lupus, this word for great weight, is to say, I am heavy everywhere. I'm surrounded by this heaviness. It's closing in. And he looks at his guys. And I imagine being one of those guys that we've just, in essence, begged in our bravado that we were going to be right with him and that we weren't going to fail him. And he looks and he's like, you guys, and how many moments have we seen Jesus be weak in front of us? How many moments has he asked anything of us? How many moments has he asked anything of us specifically for him? He could say, look at you guys, I need you to get a donkey. All right, you guys, there's going to be, follow this guy, he's carrying a pitcher of water, you're going to find a room, we're going to have the path over there. But when was it like where Jesus looks and he goes, you guys, I, I need you right now. I really need you. I can't think of any but this one. And to look and think that I would have all of that strength of conviction and to stare him straight in the face and be absolutely sure, absolutely sure that there was no possible way I would bail on him tonight. And to look and go, okay, good, because I need you. I need you right now. See, it wasn't that he needed us because if we could just be praying, he'd be okay. Because what it tells us in Luke, and again, don't just believe me, Luke 22, follow it yourself, but he'll get down and he'll pray and he'll ask the Father, he'll kneel and he'll start to sweat these like drops of blood and God will send an angel to comfort him and strengthen him so he can continue to pray. But he doesn't draw his strength from the men. So why is he telling them they need to be awake and pray? Because he knows how stupid we could be if we wake up and then have to act. He knows the danger of what would happen if we doze off for a moment and then after that are required to act in, one, in a harsh situation. Have you ever fallen asleep on a train and woken up and then wondered what stop you were at? At that moment, you don't care what's, who's around you. At that moment, you're like, ah, ah, ah. okay, that's not me, it's I saw it. But, you know, and, you know, you, we're obviously at that moment, you're just trying to figure out life. You're just trying to figure out, do I step off the train? Do I stay on the train? Where in the world am I? And am I, does my oyster card cover the zone? And Jesus knows these guys and their, temp, their, their natural, I mean, Peter, captain impetuous, a man who's quick to act but never really engage common thought. You know, there's always one person like that where somewhere inside of us there's a part that says you probably shouldn't do that. And then there's like one person that seems like they weren't born with that chip in their particular program, you know? The part that slows you down when you get to something like that, they just keep running, you know? Well, that's kind of Peter, right? But God knows you can use a guy like that because that's the same guy that will run forward when everyone else is afraid to when they need to. Praise God for such guys. Of course, I liken myself to him up. And then there's the sons of thunder, James and John. Sons of thunder. Now, for me, I always think WWE when I hear something like that. Like, we're the sons of thunder! You know, they got that tape around two fingers. I'm going to rip you apart. And they're like, one's got a mask, and they're obviously, you know, yeah, we're going to Well, they're kind of like that. They're gonna, they want Jesus to call down fire because some people won't let him through their village. You know, they're like, yeah! We're gonna. And these are the three guys that he's closest to him. Do you really think the, guy, the reason he has them closest to him because they're the really the closest I think they're the remedial class, and Jesus knows, look, if you guys start to wig out, I need you closest. I'm a parent. I know how that works. I'm like, I can't afford for you guys to fall asleep. And imagine if Jesus is like, listen, can I be vulnerable with you for a second? Imagine God getting vulnerable. This is hard enough on me as is. I mean, this is the hardest thing I'm ever going to do. 
I really can at this moment have you making it any harder. Because if you're going to go and and just jump in with your sort of testosterone-filled bravado in this moment, I've got to deal with you guys, and I still have to do with this. And he's going to have to do that. So he goes to pray. As he goes to pray, he says, Father, please hear this prayer if there is any other way to not drink this cup. Well, there's all kinds of ways not to drink the cup, so why would he say that? Well, that's why you have to put your own name. If there is any other way to save Adam, if there is any other way to pay for Marcia, to let all of the filth and the shame and the horror and the wrath and the desolation be accounted for, if there is any other way, please don't let me drink that cup. It's a legitimate prayer. Let's face it, the reason Jesus prayed it is because he's sane. Because nobody in their right mind wants to be tortured like that. But I'd like you to hear Jesus' prayer. We do know that Jesus never sinned. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Which tells us that what Jesus is doing is in a sin. Even the fact that he asks three times. Did you notice that? What is he saying? He's saying the one thing that we don't want to hear Well, one thing most people don't want to hear, but it's the one thing we better start growing shoes on. He's saying if Buddha could save him, if being nice can save him, if being a decent person, going to church, giving stuff, whatever, could save them. Now you need to reconcile something, and I need to be really serious and honest about this, because this is the one thing that where everything reads loggerheads. It comes to this point. Three different times he begs the Father. And can I just say, Jesus is going to say at the end of it all, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to the Father. And true submission isn't submission until you disagree. The moment you disagree, you, dis- you show whether or not the other person's the authority or not. You've granted them the right. If you agree all the time, how in the world could that be Submission. If you have to have control all the time, how can that be submission? If you're in the position where you're like, well, look at as long as what you do benefits me, I will follow. And look at, I, I understand that. How can that be submission? But that doesn't mean you don't present your case. Jesus did three times and it wasn't sin. But the point of it is this. If the Father sent him to the cross and there was another way, what kind of father is that? What kind of father would let his son be tortured like that, mercilessly, mocked and abused, and still only have it be a way? Can I just be honest? Not a father worth following, in my opinion. Not a God worth worshiping, in my opinion. Hey, I'm an evil father, I have two children and I love them dearly. And I can tell you that I love you, but I don't love you enough to torture either one of my children to redeem you. So you can be thankful I'm not God. And I'm evil. But if my child were to beg me and say, please don't let me do this unless it's necessary and I let him do it anyways, what kind of dad would I be if there was really another way? But you know why we don't want to say that? Because it offends people. It upsets people because they call us close-minded and bigots and all of those things. And you know why? Because we are proud and entitled to stupidity. Because if you were dying of something and you sat in your doctor's office and he's like, look, at this is the process of what's going to happen. You're going to erode, you're going to decay, and you're ultimately just going to die a horrible mess. And you knew he was telling the truth. And then he said, I happen to have a jab I can give you that will deliver you from this whole thing. And then you looked him in the face and said, I don't like your option. What other options are there? And you tell him, well, there are no other options. This is the one thing that cures you. And you look at the doctor and say, who do you think you are, Mr. Healthier Than Thou? Judgmental, close-minded. 
Who do you think you are to tell me that that's my one way? I'm entitled to other options. I should be able to rub peanut butter on my scalp and dance around naked out in the beach somewhere in Brighton and throw a rock at someone, and then that should heal me because I've decided, and there becomes the problem, as you decide because you're still the Lord of your life. And the moment you start telling people, I refuse. See, it's okay for anyone out there, you know, if you make Jesus a way, that doesn't seem offensive because it still allows them to be the Lord of their own life. And if they could just kind of go, well, I'm just going to grab a mist, it allows them to be the Lord of their life. If it's somehow I can make the rules, but somehow in it I can pick and choose the things I want, it still allows you to be the Lord of your life. You know, and somewhere in all of that, you still think you're in the one in control. And then I tell you, you have to surrender to a God who actually wants to be your Father and your Savior and your Lord. That is offensive, but it doesn't make it untrue. And this garden tells me that you really can't make Jesus one of. He's either the or he's not. Those are your two options according to Scripture. And so when someone says, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to God the Father? He's the only way to God. I'd say, no, there are all kinds of ways to stand before God, but he's the only way to stand before him innocently. He's the only way to stand before him without your sin. He's the only way to stand before him and be confident because you already have a relationship with him from the moment you said yes to him. The Father paid the price. Shouldn't that be enough? So, out of kindness, Hugo and Deborah win a whole lot of money. This is hypothetical. Don't start banking on it or asking for it. But say they win a whole lot of money, and they're in a place where they're rolling in the dough. And all of a sudden, they look and they see Adam and Angel, and they're like, you know, you guys are still kind of living in that matchbox place. You know, I, I, to be honest, I think it's about the size of a refrigerator. And, and somewhere, like, you know what, we want to buy you a house. You know, and, 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 and you didn't earn it. You didn't. Have, it's, I just, out of kindness of us, we just really feel motivated to do so. So they go and they buy him a place. And they buy him a place somewhere in Camden, but strangely enough, they buy him a city block. You know, and every, every place in it, they get the entire block. It's all theirs and the whole bit. You know, and Adam feels bad about it because Adam kind of looks and he's like, oh, you know, I, I don't know, this just doesn't seem equal. Of course it's not equal because kindness has been given. And so he's like, you know what? I need to pay you back. I tell you what, I have uh, 10 pounds. Let me give you the 10 pounds. We're good, right? Imagine how insulting that would be. He's like, well, it's all I have, so you should accept it. You could see Hugo going, I didn't ask for anything of this because I did this because I was kind. But isn't it weird how we think we're going to pay God back? Like we can actually pay God back for what he's paid? Now look at the face of the son who dies here on the cross ultimately, but kneels in the garden here. And look at the face of that, and, and then look at the face of the father and say, what else do you got? How do we do that? No one's even offering, you know, adoption like Jesus is telling us. There are other people that go, isn't it the same God? How can that be the same God? This guy has no son. This one prays to the Father who wants to adopt me and paid my price. How is that the same God? This guy kills everyone. This guy raised people from the dead. How is that the same God? Well, here we've got 330 to choose from, but you know what that is. That's you at a shopping mall, then you're still the Lord of your life. You can pick and choose as you like. You're still the master of your own destiny. Here I have to surrender. And that's what Jesus demonstrates in the garden. So here's the deal. Jesus is there. And then he prays and he comes back and he finds them asleep. And he says, what are you doing? Are you guys sleeping? And he looks at that. And by the way, notice in verse 39 it tells us, it started by the way, it tells us that he falls on his knees. And by the way, that's by the way where Christians initially, the Catholic Church instituted kneeling when you pray. It was because Jesus fell on his knees. But and you need to know it's a passive event. In other words, it wasn't something Jesus said, oh, let's start, let's start a whole new thing. Ready? Check this out. Yeah. No, that wasn't it at all. Jesus fell on his knees because the first stone was being placed. And then it tells us in this text that he fell on his face because the second stone gets placed. And as he falls on his face, it's amazing. Nobody actually tries to enact that one. Well, you know, we have benches to kneel, but let's do it right. Let's start ripping out the pew so I can all lay face down, right? Let's do it right. But the reason Jesus did this is the weight of our sin, my sin and your sin, was being placed upon him. He's thrown down to the ground. So it's there that he's praying. And he's not praying, you know, excuse me, great dish thing. God, he says, my dad, father, Abba, daddy. And I can't even think of what it would be like to hear my children say something like that and not run to him. 
knelt down and prayed, he fell on his face. An angel strengthens him and he finds him asleep. The first time he found him asleep, the word is kasyudon. Kasyudon in the simplest sense means to lie down and rest. Every one of us, you've already started to do it. And we're almost done here. I just want to warn you. But you know, you start kind of sit erect like this. And then sooner or later, something needs to be propped up or let down, right? So the, the bottom starts sliding down. The head gets propped up. You know, something we got to get somewhere. I'm like that, man. i got to do that. Well, understand, that's kind of the idea of this word kafudo. And kafudo is the idea that we basically, what you see is they're starting to lax off. So Jesus looks, and they're kind of doing, you know, at first they're like, yes, we're going to watch. And they understand what a watch is, because Jesus told us back in Matthew 24 about the people who need to be watchful, and that's the idea. And you set a watch as a guard. So imagine we're all like, yes, we're going to watch. We're watching, we're watching. You watching? Yeah, I'm watching. Okay, I'm watching. Yeah, I'm I'm watching. watching. And you realize they're they're dozing off, is kind of the idea here. Jesus goes and he prays again. It tells us, and by the way, Matt, or Luke tells us in Luke 22:45 they were sleeping from sorrow. So he, and he looks and he comes back, and, and again, he's, and Jesus is back with the Father, and he's like, look at if, if this cup can't pass, and this is interesting to me, which means Jesus won a sweat like drops of blood. He got up strengthened by an angel. He got up and then talked to these guys. Could you imagine waking up and seeing Jesus look like that? And he's dripping sweat and blood. And I look at that and I think, wow, you, you, you look different. That would startle me enough. I'd like to think that'd be startle me awake, but apparently I can't say I'm any better than these guys. So he went and prayed again. Verse 43 says he found them asleep again because their eyes were heavy. Borejo, it means their eyes were burdensome. So it starts with you kind of lax off a little bit. And then what happens is it becomes burdensome. It becomes burdensome to be proper. So now it's like, oh, everything's just so heavy. And then it tells us it goes from that to the point where they actually, in verse 45 of the third time, they find themselves sleeping and resting. It tells us a deep sleep. It tells us in the other texts. The word there is anapao, and anapao is the idea of excusing yourself. At this point, you're like, excuse me, I'm going to go to sleep. I watch this with my daughter uh, all the time. What happens is she'll kind of sit there, and she'll go like this, and then she'll like this, and you're like, ah, you know, and all that. And then sooner or later, she's like, you know, I'm going to go to bed. Will you excuse yourself? In other words, you've surrendered to the sleep. Now, I want to warn you. Jesus has been telling them, please, I just need you guys to stay awake and watch and pray with me. Could you just do that, please? I mean, if you guys are going to be so strong as to never bail on me, you're going to be so strong as to, to, to be willing to die with me, could you just do this with me, please? Could you just show any of that strength of conviction in just praying with me? Just staying awake and praying. Imagine, we'd be watching Jesus pray, intimize with the Father, which has to be really rough because he knows soon he's going to have to break that fellowship to pay for my sins and yours. And here that weight's getting pressed on him. And it's like he looks and he's like, can you, can you just do that? And he comes, he's like, you know, I, you guys are falling asleep on me, aren't you? But notice it says he said to Peter. Did you notice that? I think it's interesting because Peter was the one who led the brigade about I'll never, I'll never fail you. So Jesus is holding him accountable. I'll never fail you. Okay, Peter. He said, you never fail. And he's not throwing it in his face, but he's like, Peter, you were aware of what's going on, right? And he's like, wow, it comes back. Second time, he's like, ooh. You know, the first time, Jesus could go, uh-uh, and that was enough. The second time, he's like, uh, and he's got to tap him a little bit. And now they go, oh, 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 oh yeah, we're watching. We're watching. We're watching. Drools on the side of their face, you know. And then the third time, he looks, and he's like, they're just out cold. They're no longer leaning. They're flat on the ground. And he looks, and he's like, and so lies the bravado of men's conviction about how much they'll stand without me. You see, the thing that Jesus had, and it's important to note in his conviction to go, that Peter didn't at this point, was the Spirit of God. And the moment you say yes to Jesus, according to Ephesians 1.13, God places within you the Spirit of Christ, the very Spirit that dwelt within Jesus here that gave him the strength of conviction to follow through. The one thing we don't have otherwise. That's why Jesus would say you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Because what we don't have is that strength. So ultimately, this is what we have. We have a contrast. The contrast is the Spirit of Christ and His power versus the weakness of man's conviction. And wanting it isn't enough. If I wanted it more. And you know we do that, right? We pray and we're like, oh, I blew it again. God, this time I'm going to mean it more. As if God is ever going to be convinced by that. He knows and we don't. We've convinced ourselves. Well, sure, that'll do it. 
What God's saying is, look at What I need is you just to agree with me and let me give you the power when you know, when I, when you, I will give you the power because you don't have it of yourself. Now look at this. We go to prayer. So we finish this now and we go to prayer. Here's where we're at in this. There is a God who paid your bill. He didn't pay your bill because he was obligated. He paid your bill because he loves you. And though he paid your bill, he still gives you the choice. Because love isn't love without a choice. The question is, what choice have you made? Have you accepted Jesus' payment for your life? Well, here's the interesting thing. I've learned this as I start to walk with Christ. I meet Jesus at the cross. And as I, grow, as I walk with him, I learn to pick up my own. I move from his cross to my own. Because he tells us that if I'm going to be his disciple and follow him, I have to pick up my own cross and follow him. And for that to happen, I move from Savior to Lord. Are you still trying to be the Lord of your life? Picking and choosing what scripture you think is okay? I mean, maybe you intellectually agree with the rest of it. Maybe you don't. And the reason you really is because naturally you wouldn't succeed to it. Of course you wouldn't naturally surrender to it because the natural body wants to protect itself. And the natural body is, you know, the natural us is all about us. And we can't say, well, I'm, I'm not going to agree with it because it just doesn't agree with me. Does it make it true? There were a lot of things I thought were insane in trying to become citizens here. But I can argue with it all I want. In the end of it all, I have to surrender to it if I'm going to become a citizen here. I can say, I don't think that makes any sense, but it doesn't have to make sense. I'm not making the rules, and I don't have a right to make the rules. But I have to submit to them. I can offer and say, well, don't you think we could kind of... But they have a final say, and I can say in the end of it, all, not my will, yours be done. But I look at the God who only loves me and only wants me and proved it by sending his son to die on the cross for me, who made it clear it was the only way. Only Jesus would die for me, and only Jesus would raise from the dead to give me a new life. Aren't you thankful the one that qualified is the one who wanted to? And even though in the end of it all, there was a battle of his own will, Jesus conquered the enemy in this garden so he could take me back to that place of intimacy and safety and peace and joy and hope. And can I say this as we pray? If you've accepted Jesus Christ, are you trying to live like you're still in the wilderness? You know, Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because he took all the weight of my sin and yours upon himself. And if the heaviness of the world is upon your shoulders, I really don't think you're living... I mean, it's kind of like you're living in Eden without living in Eden. Because Jesus is like, I took all that weight off of you so you could follow me so your legs would be free to dance and your hands would be free to be raised and your voice would be free to be, to be full of praise and your heart would be free to be full of adoration and joy and intimacy. And you can't have that if you're weighed down by the world. But are you living a life right now where it's just like gravity has tripled on you, like you're underwater somewhere, but somewhere in all of that, you just kind of know that can't be right. Will you give it to Jesus today? Remember, he paid the price. He did the work. The only thing left is whether or not you're willing to... To say, you know what? I agree. And because you've paid this price, I want to make you Lord like you deserve to be. And in making you Lord, I want that freedom you give me. I want to walk in Eden, in that place of pleasure with you, intimate with you like I should be. But that's your choice. He's already done the work. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text and the richness of it. And Lord, I know that it is an affront. It is an affront to a culture that speaks of no exclusivity, that is all-inclusive, that fights anything that seems absolute, down to gender, down to race. 
that there is this argument over things that are fundamental. And anybody who seems to stand on in any form of absolute is in essence absolutely rejected by those who claim no absolutes but are absolutely sure that their non-absolutes are absolute. And here we are having to reconcile this text. And we can bend it and twist it, but staring us in the face is this simple truth that clearly there was no other way but you, Jesus. And I get how you say you are the way, not a way. The truth, not a truth. The life, not a life. And nobody, nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through you, except by you. So, now I'm forced to deal with that. The crisis of my heart now stands and I recognize that I have to make this choice. You've paid the bill. Will I accept that payment? Or will I, in my own selfish self-centered, self-aggrandizing pride, say, no, I'll pay for it myself. I'll drink the cup. God, don't let us be so proud as to not take your love. Don't make us so proud that we would not receive what you offer us. When you took the weight of my sin and their sin upon yourself, oh God, Remove it from us. We confess to you, there are times, Lord, where we have taken the weight of the world and our focus is on ourselves and our performance and not on you. We recognize prayer is not some great performance. It is a communication with you. What we do even as you, Jesus, did in the garden. We cast ourselves before you and say, not my will, yours be done. Here's my desires, but in the end, not my will, yours be done. And I pray today you would start setting free people in this room who have been in bondage of that heaviness. And they're trying. They are trying so hard. And they're so exhausted. And they're working so hard, just like the very symptoms of the wilderness. And they're frustrated. And they feel like they're failures. And they feel like everything they do is wrong. Because somehow it still sits on their shoulders. But God, today in this room, set us free. And if you're not sure if you've ever accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or you're sure you haven't, I'm going to pray a prayer this final moment. And, and in that, I ask if you agree at the end to say amen confidently. What you're saying is, I agree, so be it in my life. Let these be my words now. And here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner. You know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I've failed. You know it. I know it. And I stand in my own merit guilty before you. I could try to twist things and bend things, but if I'm just going to be honest with you, I know I stand guilty before you in my own merit. But you already knew that. And you knew that that guilt had to be paid for. And so, you sent Jesus to die on the cross, to pay for all of those sins. Not just the ones I've done, but the ones I've yet to discover. The horrible things I still have yet to discover in the deep and nasty, dark crevices of my heart. And when he died on the cross, my bill was paid. Even as he said, to Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. And just like your scripture promised, He was buried and rose again on the third day to show me that my surrender to you and allowing you to take the death and the filth and the guilt was only the beginning. But now there's a new life with Jesus as my Lord and with you as my Father. And I say yes. 
that's really what you want to do, I say yes. God, remove this burden, remove this heaviness, and set me free to love you like you ordained. I gladly receive in faith, undeservedly, but by grace. Because of your grace, your kindness, you've given this. Not because I've earned it. So by faith I receive this and say, have it. I have it now. Have me. That's what I give you. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. So Lord, you've known those who've said yes today in this room. Bring them to boldness to tell those, Lord, that they know love you around them. And I pray that we would grow the spine we need to grow to stand up to your, for your scripture and let the world know that there is a way and that we, we, we deserve no way, but you are the way. And let us proclaim that. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit now to overcome ourselves and to be bold with your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.